We're in Genesis chapter 15 this morning. In Genesis 14, Abram, not yet Abraham, but Abram, returned from the slaughter of the five kings of the north. He has rescued Lot, and he's rescued others that have been taken captive or into slavery. And this is the first battle of Genesis, of recorded uh, Bible battles. And we have Abraham, who's a herdsman. But he's got 300 hired servants that are trained in warfare. That's a little army. <laughs> and he goes up and he rescues Lot. But on his way back down into Israel, in near and around Judah, Abram meets with Melchizedek. And he gave Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth, of all the goods that now he possessed. Goods or booty that's been taken from the five kings of the north. Goods and booty that were taken from the four kings of the south that he went back and rescued. And Abram returns and he has tremendous wealth. And Abram... He doesn't want any of that wealth for himself. And without the permission of the kings, he gives a tithe of their wealth. And he gives a tithe, a tenth, to Melchizedek. Now, scriptures already describe these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah as evil kings. And these evil kings are delighted to give a tithe unto the Lord and they think they're getting off cheap just by a tenth because they have offered all of their booty all their possessions to Abram and Abram says no I'm not going to take any of it unless you say you have made me wealthy and so we have Abram giving a tithe to Melchizedek It's not hard to give a tenth when you've just been returned everything. <laughs> uh, their lives have been spared. A tithe seemed very marginal, to say the least. But Abram, he only desires to give a tenth unto the Lord. Now, I don't know how you approach your giving, but Lori and I approach ours in this way. We look upon a tithe as we owe it unto God. God has blessed us tremendously. The least we can give back to him is a tithe. And our giving begins after that tithe. What do we give above what we consider is required? Because scripture records that we are to give tithes and offerings. So... Uh, God has been more than faithful in our lives. He has blessed us, and it's just, uh, for us, it's just being a good steward to return to Him. But God calls us to be good stewards of everything we possess. And that isn't just possessions. That's of our time. That's of our uh, livelihood, our gifts. God wants us to be giving of those back to Him. But Abram, he's reached a place 
where he owns enough. He doesn't need any more wealth. And that's not a bad place to be. I don't think I've quite gotten there yet where I have enough. <laughs> but I'm close. The Lord has blessed us. Anyway, let's look at this morning's text, Genesis 15. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, indeed one born in my house, to be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside, God bringing Abram outside, and said, Look now towards the heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. We have here the word of the Lord coming to Abram. And it comes to him in a vision. Now God speaks to man in a variety of ways. We cannot conjure up God speaking to us. It's his initiative. He wants to speak to us. He will. But there are several ways that God does speak to us. Visions and dreams are one of those ways. Now, I've never had a dream or a vision from the Lord. Not a dream that I would consider from the Lord. I have dreams, but, you know, they're, <laughs> they're nothing that I would want to say the Lord gave me. Maybe too much pizza or something, but not. But several years back here in our fellowship, we had a lady, and she had multitudes of dreams. Her dreams were not always biblical. Uh, they did not always line up with Scripture. And she came to me, and she wanted me to share her dreams with you, the congregation. And in good conscience, I couldn't do that. <laughs> no, whoa, 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 no, I'm not gonna, I don't think I'm going to go there. <laughs> uh, she considered her dreams, though, and her interpretation of the dreams as a gift from God. And I had to tell her, I said, dreams are dreams. Perhaps they are from God, but they are not necessarily a gift from God. She was putting them in gift of the spirit type category. Now, if God has given you a dream, and he does give some of you people, some of you shared your dreams. Check it out with Scripture. If it aligns with Scripture, hey, go with it. And if it is from God, it will align itself with Scripture. But God is sovereign, and he may choose to speak to you, to you in a dream or a vision. But he has never chosen to speak to me that way. Not yet, anyhow. <laughs> it says old men will have dreams. I'm waiting. All right. But God uses many different ways and methods to speak. He can use angels to speak to us. 
He can use a working of the Spirit, His Spirit in our heart to bring a truth home to us in our hearts and in our minds. That's God speaking to us. He uses prophets. He uses even sometimes a preacher like myself. Yeah. And God always uses His written word to us. Several years ago, when I was living out in California, God was moving on my heart and life to move to Northern California. You who don't know California, you can go, what's the difference? Well, there is a difference. But, uh, and God used my radio to speak to me, my car radio. I'm going up north, and if you know anything about I-5 that goes north, you hit the grapevine. And once you hit the grapevine, which is a mountain, you drop down into the big valley, into Bakersfield and that area. Well, what happens when you top that mountain and go down the other side? You lose all your Los Angeles radio stations. And so I'm dialing across the dial in my radio. And I come across a guy and he says, I have a word from the Lord for you today. In my sarcasm, I said, okay, lay it on me. <laughs> and he said, I'll never forget it. He said, quit circling the mountain and move north. The Lord had been moving on my heart to move. I almost wrecked my car. God did have a word for me. But no dreams or visions yet. But he may. But God has given Abram a vision. And God speaks to Abram in this vision and tells him, Do not be afraid, Abram. Why would God tell Abram not to be afraid? He was afraid. God doesn't, God doesn't tell us things that are useless. He's saying, Abram, do not be afraid because he is afraid. Abram is probably afraid of the retaliation of the kings of the north coming back down. He's went up and he's took all this booty away from them and the people and everything. He's probably afraid they're going to come after him. Abram, by trade, is a herdsman. He uh, watches over animals. And he has many servants. But now, all of a sudden, he's a military power because he's went up and in a battle, he's taken all these servants and all their possessions back and he's went back to the south. So God assures Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. That has to comfort him. It has to. For God to say that, I would be comforted. But Abram, he's a herdsman by trade. He wants to be a man of peace, not a man of war. He's no longer a young man either. Sarah, his wife, is also older, and she's past the years of having children, but God is promising Abram children. And now Abram reminds God of that promise. In verse 2 we have, Lord God, what will you give me seeing that I am childless? And all I have in my house, Lord, is Eliezer of Damascus, who is a trusted servant. When you're older and when you're wanting children, a servant doesn't suffice. 
God has spoken to Abram several times about his children, his children being numerous as the dust of the earth, his children being as the stars of the sky, and yet Abram at this point does not have one child, one offspring, and they're growing older. Abram and Sarah are growing old. But Abram is fixated on this promise by God. Give me a child. I need an heir. And all of Abram's possession, and they, they're great. He's a very wealthy man. They mean nothing because he wants a child. Listen to Abram's boldness as he speaks to God in this vision. And we might as well be bold with God because he knows our thoughts and he knows our wants. So you don't need to tiptoe around God when you're talking to him in prayer. I mean, he knows your heart. You might as well just come out and say it, you know. And his boldness is, is, is really bold. Lord, you have not given me an offspring, indeed one born in my house. Lord, you have not lived up to your promise in my life. God answers Abram, Eliezer shall not be your heir. And in that time, if your servant or your trusted servant had a child, he was considered part of your family and, and you took care of him and you would raise him up as a son. And God is clearing up there and he says, wait, 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 Eliezer is not going to be the one that raises you up a son. You're going to have a son and he's going to come from your own body. Old King James, I like it. It says loins. It comes from the hips, from the body. It's going to be right there. It's going to be yours. And these are bold questions by Abram. But he isn't doubting. He's just saying, you haven't done it yet, Lord. You haven't done what you said you would do. God answers him directly. God declaring to Abram, Abram, if you didn't hear me, let me be perfectly clear. You will have a son, and he will come from your own body. Then God takes Abram outside. You almost think he's going to spank him or something, but no. God just takes him outside, and he tells him, Abram, look up. Look towards the heavens. Look at the stars. Number them if you think you can. And then I think God pauses. He wants his words to sink down into Abram's heart. And when then we read, from the time Abram left the land of Ur until the time that a child is born unto Abram is 25 years. 25 years before that will happen. Isaac, the one that God is promising to Abram, he just hasn't named him yet, Isaac is still 15 years away from being born. And God's saying, this promise will come true, Abram. It's going to happen. But it's still 15 years away. Has God given you a promise? Is it yet to happen? 
How many years have passed since that promise? Travel back. Think about it. I have a lot of things that I feel like God has promised me. Consider what your response has been to that promise. Abram is saying, God, what a, you've blessed me with wealth, but I don't have a child. What are you doing, God? But God has him outside now, and he has him looking up where he should have been looking all the time. And Abram, it re, it's recorded, he believes the Lord. He believes the Lord, and it's accounted unto him as righteousness. Now that's one of the basic foundational truths of Christianity. Right there you have a basic truth of Christianity. Through faith, by believing, we are righteous in the eyes of God. No other way. It's all by faith. It's not by baptism. It's not by anything but faith that God is who he said he is and that his word is truth and that I trust in him for my salvation or my righteousness. Simply believing that God is who he said he is. Now we know that, don't we? My goodness. We're, you know, we're versed in the Bible well enough to know that uh, uh, the truth of God is he is our righteousness and believing in him. But you would be amazed because I read all these different polls that they take in Christian churches and things. Over 50% of Christians, evangelical Christians, not people who just claim Christianity. I was born in America, so I'm a Christian. No, no. Evangelical Christians, over 50% of them believe their good works give them a right relationship with God. Please don't say you belong to Calvary Chapel and go out and talk about your good works. Don't do that to me. I'll deny I know you. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but if you're looking to good works for your right relationship with God, you cannot have one slip up in your lifetime. You can't do it. You can't have one sin held against you if you're looking to your own works for righteousness. So why do we do that? Why do we Christians look at our good works as if they give us righteousness? Well, I think it's because gradually and very gradually we get caught up into a process called legalism. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, legalism is a danger to you. It's a pitfall. We somehow think that our behavior determines our good standing or our righteousness before God. Think back now. Think back when you were first born again. You received God's grace with open arms and, the, you know, it was yippee, I'm saved. And people looked at you like you're weird, but, you know, you, you had a thing going on between you and the Lord. You're, you're more than blessed that you have been saved. But very subtly, we begin to transfer God's grace over into my behavior. And we begin to look at my behavior as a right standing with a perfectly holy God.
and we can actually find ourselves opposing God by promoting good behavior. Let me say that again. We can find ourselves opposing God by promoting our good behavior as our righteousness. We can even be found trying to change another person's behavior even before they become a Christian. You know, God is the one who changes a life. And he does it from the inside out. He doesn't say, clean up your act and come to me and be a believer. No, he says, you come to me, you believe, and I will clean up your act. <laughs> There's a big difference. And that is simply called sanctification, a cleansing by God and his spirit. And when a person is born again, there is a change. Sometimes it's a radical change, and sometimes it's not so radical, but there is always a change when you become born again. We become a new creation, and all things become new. Turn to Luke 18, and we'll talk about how Jesus looked upon this. But Jesus is going to talk about those who trust in their own righteousness. So turn to Luke 18. We'll look at verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two, went, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as rise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We have two characters here, and they're contrasting characters. We have a Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisee happened to be uh, of the sect that uh, strictly observe the Mosaic law, uh, and we'll get into it here in a moment. But And then the other guy is the tax collector. All tax collectors in Israel at this time were considered a traitor to the state of Israel. They were the enemy of Israel because they have sided in with the enemy to make the people poor from taxes. The Pharisees, he stood and prayed thus with himself. It's not a good thing to pray to yourself. You know, what, what, what's wrong with that picture right away, you know? <laughs> he stood and he prayed thus with himself. And he is standing. That's not a position of humility in prayer, by the way. And he's speaking words, but his words 
according to the Lord, are directed to himself. Both men have come to the temple, a place of prayer. The Pharisee, he prays a prayer that's so self-centered that Jesus declares he prays to himself. And God has no part of that prayer whatsoever. He will not even listen to that prayer. The Pharisee, he's totally absorbed with himself. And there is a giant assumption by the Pharisee that he is righteous. He thanks God that he's not like the sinful tax collector. And he's not an exhortioner, whatever. Or he's not unjust. And he's not like the tax collector. And he says, nor am I an adulterer. If you listen closely to conversations around you in today's world, we hear the same kind or the same type of justifications. I'm a good person. I don't cheat on my wife. I'm an honest man in my business deals. I'm a good neighbor. I don't kick my dog. Whatever you want to put in there. And this Pharisee is telling God what he isn't. That's bad enough. But then he is thankful that he's not like the tax collector who is sinful and evil. The Pharisee is telling God, I am not a sinner. That is bold. And now the Pharisee will get into his good works. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Now, fasting twice a week would not hurt some of us. But don't think fasting makes you righteous. It might make you skinny, but it's not going to make you righteous, all right? And with any giving, he talks about he tithes of everything he owns. With any type of giving that you give to the Lord, you've got to make sure you're giving it with a cheerful heart or it does you no good whatsoever to give. It doesn't benefit you in the least if you begrudge what you give. Enough of the, uh, the Pharisee. Let's look at the tax collector. He is so convicted, you might say, of his sin, that he cannot even lift his eyes upward and he prays. But he is praying. He is remorseful. He's repentant. And he beats his breast and declares, I'm a sinner, God. Beating of the breast in those days was, it was a sign of anguish, of turmoil going on within. And he cries out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Enough said. Then we have Jesus' commentary on these two prayers. The tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. To be humble 
I think we need to really understand what true humility is. To be humble is not kicking the dust and saying, aw, shucks. That is not being humble. Being humble is an honest evaluation of yourself. That's all being humble is. It's an honest evaluation. The tax collector, by his own humble confession, he says, I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. Contrast that to the Pharisee, who is probably still off somewhere praying to himself. Now go back to Abram. Go back to Abram. He believes God. He believes God's promises to him. And this is accounted unto Abram as righteousness because he believes. Belief It's an option we all have. I do not think for a moment that belief comes by a set of facts being presented to us, us examining the facts and then say, okay, I can go with that. No, no, no. Jesus looked at Thomas, one of his disciples, and he said, Thomas, be believing. Change your attitude, Thomas. Be believing. Abraham believes God. Believing is the basis of righteousness for each and every human being. Every Christian should know that and understand that. It's a deception of Satan himself that causes us to think our good works make us righteous. So when you're out and about, when you're at school, when you're at work, when you're whatever you're doing, listen carefully sometime to the conversation that go on around you. Many times you're going to hear justifications. I'm a good man. Don't cheat on my wife. You know, blah, blah, blah. Don't ever fall into that trap. Be a man and woman or woman of faith who believes. Be like Thomas who was believing. God didn't have to tell him again. Thomas believed. Because Thomas says, my Lord and my God. We should say the same thing. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, I want to I want to thank you, Lord, for controlling the circumstances of my life, for giving me a heart that would respond to you by believing. That is our prayer to you as a fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for making your truths known to us and then given us the courage to be believing. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. 
It's that simple, just to simply believe in you and believe you are who you said you are. Thank you for that truth. Thank you, Lord, here at this Christmas season that we can have the assurance that we're your children simply because we believe. Do a good work in our hearts and lives, Lord. Be with us as we go about our daily affairs and just help us to be that good witness of your goodness and your grace. Thank you again for taking us on as your children. And we pray and ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.